You know, there are some people out there that say you can't teach a whole chapter to a church on Sunday morning. And uh, they don't know Calvary Chapel. You guys have a hunger for the word, and there is so much here I know God is going to bless in a great way. As we go through our study today, we're going to see, first of all, the accusation of the enemy in verses 1 through 9. And then we'll see the confession of Paul in verses 10 through 21. And then we'll see the procrastination of Felix in verses 22 through 27. And these are all things that we're going to be able to relate to. The one that I think we can kind of all relate to, maybe most of us here. How many of you here are procrastinators? Just out of curiosity. You kind of wait till the last minute. I think I am, unfortunately, but I'm learning to go against the grain of who I am by my nature. But uh, I can relate to this quote. One person said, if it weren't for the last minute, nothing would get done. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I think that sometimes we do that and uh, I might be done, you know, in trivial things. But, but when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that you, no one here would procrastinate. You know, if you don't know the Lord, you know, if you don't know for sure where you will go when you die, you want to make sure you get that one squared away right here, right now. You don't want to let another second go by. Listen, you are loved. God died for you on a cross. He, he shed his blood to wash away all your sins. He did all the work. All you have to do is say yes. Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I receive you into my life. Lord, I want you to call the shots. Be the Lord, the Savior of my life. You can do that today. Not just playing church, not just going to church, but going to heaven. Don't wait until tomorrow to make sure you're a Christian because tomorrow may never come. And then number two, if you're here today and as a Christian, you're, you're messing around, you know, stop it, man. Let's get right with God. Let's lay it all down at the foot of the cross. Don't wait until you get old. You know, some of you young people, you're thinking, well, I don't have to really be right on because I'm young and I want to sow my wild oats and I want to have a good time and whatever, you know, and, and you get involved in sex or drugs or all that kind of stuff and you waste your life. There's a reason why they call that, you know, getting wasted, man. Sexual intimacy was created for marriage. And that way, when you save yourself and you get married, God will use that as a beautiful thing to bond you and your future spouse together. So whatever, wherever we find ourselves, let there be no procrastination. You know, I, I pray we would learn all these things today as we work our way towards this guy Felix. But in verses 1 through 9, we see, first of all, the accusation of the enemy. Remember, Paul is now in the city of Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Judea. And here he's going to spend two years in, as a prisoner of Rome, but he's not really a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ, which is a good place to be. The best place in the whole world to be is to be a slave of Jesus Christ. That's where, where Paul is. Remember last week we talked about the fact that he was rushed to Caesarea for his own protection. And we read in chapter 23, verse 35, Felix, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And what that means is he would uh, take the case, basically, is what he was saying. Because the Roman government, man, they really took uh, the legal processes of law seriously. They wouldn't rely on any written accusations from some other person. 
for them, what they would do is they would conduct an independent examination. And so now uh, Paul here, he's starting from scratch. As he stands before Felix, the governor, we're going to see now the accusers now come uh, to Caesarea, and we're going to see the whole court scene in just a second. But this guy Felix that that Paul is standing before, uh, he was bound to the Roman law in one sense, but he wasn't exactly a Boy Scout. Um, When you look at his record, he was the only slave in history and Roman history to become a governor, and he was a very cruel character who received really his appointment only because his brother was a good friend of the emperor, uh, Caesar Nero. Uh, Tacitus, the historian, tells us that Felix was corrupt, but he was protected by his brother's friendship with the emperor. And that historian tells us that he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king in the spirit of a slave. And so the Bible tells us that's a bad combination in Proverbs 19.10 and Proverbs 30, verse 22. And so we begin now with the accusation of the enemy. We read in verse 1 of Acts 24, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, You might want to scratch out that word evidence, really, although I know you can't do that to your Bible. But there was no evidence. There were charges. There were accusations against Paul. You know, and Luke mentions here in verse 1 that there is this high priest called Ananias. Uh, He was 80 years old at this time. It must have been very difficult for him to make this uh, difficult 60-mile journey. But... The reason he did is because he wanted Paul dead. That's how bad they wanted him to die. This guy would travel at 80 years old. didn't matter. They wanted his life, right? And so Ananias is there. The elders are there. This guy, Tertullus, is there. Now, Tertullus was one of the most famous lawyers of his time. He was considered to be an eloquent speaker. Speaker, You know, I was looking up online some of the famous lawyers. Uh, one of the names that came up is Johnny Cochran. You know, you guys remember him? Some of you guys are old enough to remember the OJ uh, trials and stuff. And anyways, that's kind of like what Tertullus was, man. High-priced, slick, lying, slander, lawyer, attorney. Think about it. The high priest hired this guy, man. He was an eloquent speaker. As a matter of fact, the word orator, the Greek word, is rhetor, where we get our word rhetoric from. And rhetoric is the art of of effective speaking or persuasive writing, techniques in talking, language designed to have not only a persuasive but impressive effect on the audience. Um, And so here's this guy. He's a a slick attorney, uh, uh, simply uh, an accuser who's also a slanderer. We're going to see it all come together. And so we read, first of all, about his flattery in verse 2. Notice it says, And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusations, saying, Seeing that through you, Felix, through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all palaces, most noble Felix, 
with all thankfulness. You know, here we see Tertullus begins by describing the reign of Felix as one of peace and prosperity. And yet, during his reign, riots uh, broke out like crazy. Felix had robbed the people, appointed corrupt leaders. Uh, he really was anything but the most noble Felix. But, but what we find right here is Felix is resorting uh, to flattery, right? I mean, this guy, the governor, he was hated by the Jews. He was noted more for his bribe-taking than for his benevolence. And, and, and here's the way it works, and I think you guys know how we can manipulate and pull strings, that if the truth is not on our side, then a lot of times we just want to get the person on our side. And we get the person on our side, and whatever which way it works out, you know, a lot of times that has to do with us you know, flattering them. And that's what we see here. Felix was not a good guy. He was a cat. Felix was a cat. Yeah, and, and you guys know that, that cats are not good, right? You guys know that, right? You know, Expositor's Bible commentary reveals the fact that during his reign over Judea, Felix had repeatedly crucified the leaders of various uprisings and had killed many of their followers for disturbing the Pax Romana. And so basically, this is what I think. The, the guys came down, the elders came down, the high priest came down, Tertullus came down, and they thought, this is going to be easy. Paul will die. I, I know that's what they were thinking, right? But you've got to go through the formalities. He begins with the flatteries. And then notice what we read next in verse 4. He says, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him, you yourself may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. And so, you know, what did he say about the great apostle Paul? Number one, he said he was a plague. He calls him a plague in verse 5. Now, this Greek word is used only three times in the Bible. The other two times is called pestilence. And so kind of the way that they looked at Paul was someone who was uh, this starting a fatal or epidemic disease in society. Secondly, he said that he was a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Uh, if you have another translation, same Greek word, it says he was a troublemaker, always stirring up riots around the world. Now, this is a heavy accusation in the Roman government because the one thing they would not tolerate is a disturbance of the peace, right? And so you guys, you've read the book of Acts, right? You know that Paul often did, you know, was followed up by either revival or a riot, but it wasn't his fault. You guys know that, right? I mean, he, he was the last thing, you know, the farthest thing from a plague, the farthest thing from an individual who would be accused of doing something derogatory or negative to a society. Uh, he wasn't a plague, and he wasn't a creator of dissension in the world. And then 
And then the third thing that Tertullus says was that he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, the, the word ringleader, it means a chief or champion. But of course, here it's used in a derogatory sense, right? I mean, basically, he was saying Paul is the leader, the instigator of individuals around the world engaged in unlawful activities that this guy right here is responsible for the, you know, the, the revolution that's taking place now in Rome, right? And, and so, um, you know, that's, that's the charges. And, and you guys, we know that was not Paul. Now, it's interesting, and he calls him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes because Jesus was from Nazareth, and he was referred to as a Nazarene in Matthew chapter 2 in verse 23. And so... Um, we're going to come back to that because in one sense, he was a chief. He was a champion to those who followed Jesus. So here, here's the thing. When we read the text, they were trying to bring these charges together to label Paul as a rebel against Rome. They also presented him as a rebel against the Jews because in verse 6, they said he was a profaner of the temple. And you guys know the temple precincts, uh, you know, Women can only go certain far uh, distance. Jews can only go, uh, I mean, Jewish uh, women can only go to a certain distance. No Gentiles could go beyond this place. And the Romans did give the Jews the right to execute, you know, someone to, you know, go ahead and do the capital punishment if a Gentile passed beyond a certain border. And they accused Paul of doing that, but he never did. It was just words it was just an accusation, and it was just like the enemy. That's how he is. He is an accuser of the brethren. Did you guys know that the word devil, it means slanderer? You know, Napoleon was right. He said that if a person knows how to flatter, then a person knows how to slander. And what we find is this guy, Tertullus, man, he's good at that kind of stuff, right? He's manipulating. He's pulling strings, you know, some people, they're guilty of procrastination. We'll talk about that later. Some people, they're pretty good at flattery, too. And you've got to be careful with that when you're trying to manipulate people. You know, flattery is when you say something nice about someone in their, in their presence, and you would never say it about them behind their back. Why? Because you want something from them. You're trying to get something from them. Like we talked earlier, if the truth is not on your side, then you get the person on your side. And so here's this guy, uh, Tertullus, and, and he's flattering, he's slandering. And what we find is that he, in his talking smack, in these charges, in these accusations, in these lies, he is a puppet of the devil. Because that's what the devil does. You know, I was talking to someone earlier, and they were, they were saying that they could relate to this study because they always hear in their mind the accusations of the enemy. You know, isn't that what the enemy does? He lies. He condemns us. He puts us down. He says, you're not good enough. He says, you're not forgiven. I mean, all these things, he comes against us when in all reality, you're God's son. You're God's daughter. You're God's children. We're the church. We're his bride. He loves us. But what does the Bible say that the, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says that he does it often. Notice it says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God, notice day and night has been cast down. And, and what we see right here is, is not complicated. You don't have to have a degree in theology. What you see right here is John 8, verse 44. The devil is a liar and the devil is a murderer. And that's what they're trying to do to Paul right here. In verse 9, the Jews assented to what this guy was saying. In other words, they joined in on the attack and they violated the ninth commandment, which says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. And so they accused Paul of political treason, of religious heresy, and of temple desecration. And so we see the way the enemy operates, the, the enemy's accusation. But then we move now to Paul's defense, which really consists primarily in Paul's confession. And so we read here in verse 10, it says, And then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And so Paul had been five days in Caesarea, seven days around there in Jerusalem. And Paul here, we're going to see all he does is answer truthfully. All he does is answer cheerfully. You know, a lot of times when we get people talking about us or the enemy, you know, talking about us, you know, these things start happening you know, you, what do we want to do? We want to defend ourselves. A lot of times what we try to do by defending ourselves is to demonize the other person. Oh, they're so bad. Paul doesn't even do that. He could have, but he doesn't. He, he, he subtly, he, he real softly defends himself. But, but what we're going to see is all he does in the process is tell the truth of how much he loved Jesus. That, that's really what we're going to see right here in this confession of Paul. You know, from a judicial standpoint, Paul's case was airtight. There was no proof of wrongdoing on his part, but they hated him because he loved Jesus, and that's what will happen in our life as well. And so they were willing to lie that Paul might die. And so Paul does, um, you know, just in case, remember I tell you guys this all the time, um, if you don't know what to say, uh, Mark Twain said, just tell the truth, right? And that's what Paul ends up doing right here. Notice in verse 12, it says, And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive 
to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And, and this is really cool that when you look at their accusation, you know, we learn things about the enemy, but I love what we learn by looking at Paul's confession. Paul said, as far as uh, their charges against me, um, you know, causing a rebellion in Rome, they have no proof. They didn't see me stirring anything up. They didn't see me starting a riot. Later on, he's going to talk about when I went to Jerusalem, I didn't go, you know, as against the Jews. I went bringing alms, bringing donations to the poor. You know, but here in between those two things, he gives us his confession. And, you know, every once in a while, and I don't know if this necessarily applies, but it's something to think about, you guys. When someone criticizes us or when someone accuses us, sometimes there is an aspect of truth in there, huh? Have you guys ever had someone criticize you and right away you put up the wall and you're like, you don't know what you're talking about. Get out of here, Willis, or whatever, something like that, you know. You know, and you close yourself to it. This is what I've learned. If someone criticizes me, even though my flesh doesn't like it, my spirit it can, can, can use it. And so I'll sift through it. Is there anything there, anything there that's true? I mean, if, if there is, then thank God for that criticism. Thank God for that, whatever the accusation, because I want to be a better man. I don't want to sit here pretending like I got it all together when I don't. You know, and it's all, you know, this pride thing. So there is that aspect of that. Paul here, in listening to what they're saying, he does say, well, that's not true and that's not true. But you know what? As far as uh, the whole thing about the Nazarene and a couple other issues, I'll confess that is true. That is true. But I like the way he does it because they called him the ringleader the chief, the champion of the church. And he doesn't say it that way. He doesn't say, yeah, I am the leader. I, I am the pope. You know, he doesn't do that. He just says, as far as the way that is true, I worship God. And I, and I love what ends up happening here. What you guys see in the confession is, number one, Paul was blameless. Number two, Paul was bold. He was bold. You know, maybe, and I don't know for sure, but maybe, you know, you're facing death or you're facing persecution or you're facing someone that might ostracize you. They might not be your friend anymore. When you admit you're a Christian, when you share the gospel, when you share the love of the Lord, you know, there might be that aspect of you that holds back and you're like, well, I don't want to say anything. You know, um, any of you here, would you consider yourself maybe an undercover Christian? Out of curiosity, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know, I don't need to tell anybody, right? I mean, you got like the mentality that says, I'll share the gospel, and if necessary, I'll use words. Listen, it's necessary to use words. Your life opens doors, you live the life, shine before men, but you have to articulate, you have to share the gospel, you have to share the name of Jesus, you have to be bold and say, you know, I am a Christian. Now, I'm not saying that we should necessarily, you know, shove it down people's throats and, and be obnoxious. And, you know, sometimes uh, the word is not the right time. But, man, I'll tell you what. You can talk to anybody in this room, any Christian, the ones that really love the Lord, and they will tell you 
that they have eyes to evangelize, that all of their life they're always looking for open doors so that they can tell people about Jesus because they're dying. And they, they'll stand before God one day, believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And you had the truth to share with them, and you held it in? You know, what we see right here is Paul's confessing, as far as that goes, it's true. You know, there in, in verse 14, notice again what it says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, and in my Bible it's a capital W. You guys have a capital W? What that means is the translators knew this is something special. According to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. And this is it, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I mean, don't apologize. You don't have to apologize for telling people that you believe the Bible. That, that's all Paul is saying here. We're not a sect of the Nazarenes. We are the fulfillment of the scriptures. This is really what Judaism was all about. They were telling the whole world, you guys need a savior. The Messiah will come one day. They gave all the prophecies, over 300 of them, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And Paul says, this is all I am. I worship God. I believe the Bible. And Jesus came and fulfilled those prophecies. And what he's doing right here is he's sharing, you know, and it's a great way to refer to Christianity that this is the way you, you find life. This is the way you live life. This is the way to heaven. It's all found in Jesus Christ. You know, something we see so clearly after the question of Thomas. Remember in John chapter 14 and verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. What is uh, Paul doing here? He's, he's confessing Christ, right? And that's what we need to do. I know Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him also I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And, and that's what we're doing. You know, are, are you confessing him? Are you sharing him? Or are you ashamed? You know, Paul confesses to the simple truth that he believes the Bible, that Christianity is not a new religion per se. It's the fulfillment of the scriptures. The thing about the Jews is they were looking for someone to help them temporarily, someone to help them politically, but we're looking for the Messiah to help us spiritually and eternally. Paul here says the whole thing that you guys got to know why there's a revival or a riot, why there's always this craziness that surrounds my life is because I believe in heaven and hell. I believe that we don't stay down when we die in the dirt, that there's a soul inside of us that must stand before God and, and, and there's a resurrection. Did you guys know this? That there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust? See, when we die, or maybe the Lord will take us in the rapture, but if we die, our bodies, they go down into the dirt. Our soul ascends either into heaven or hell, right? It's a, and we don't even know for sure where heaven is. Some people think, well, heaven is on the other side of the universe. Maybe 
But did you ever think about the, the fact that may, heaven might just be a different dimension? I mean, it's a trip when you really think about the, the actual location. Because right now, if you think about it, there are angels here. There are demons here. There is God here. So, you know, try not to think necessarily of that being somewhere on the other side of the universe, some distant land. I mean, it's closer than you realize. So, so when our bodies die, they become dirt. But then there's the day of the resurrection when our bodies will be your DNA. You're still going to be you. You know, I'm going to be able to go to heaven and, and see, recognize my wife. She's going to look like her. And I'm going to look like me, taller, dark hair. But it'll be me. It's a DNA resurrected, right? I'm going to receive a body, a glorified body, that will be able to inhabit heaven. And what kind of body that is, I don't know the details of it. I know there'll be no, I don't think there'll be any tartar buildup. I mean, I trip out on like what my body will be. Like right now, if I want to go to the moon, I have to wear a spacesuit, right? Or whatever they call it, right? But in our glorified bodies, we'll be able to visit the stars. Think about that. It's a body that's completely different. It's a body that can stand in the presence of God. Think about that, you know? And so when if God were here in his fullness and appeared to us right here, we would disintegrate because our bodies cannot handle the presence of God. But when we receive our glorified body, the resurrection of the just, then we're going to be able to inhabit heaven and we're going to be able to live in his presence. But think about this too. There's a resurrection of the unjust. And they will receive a body that will be able to inhabit hell forever. And Paul here is saying, this is why uh, I live the life that I live. Because I believe that when we die, life doesn't end. We don't just go down to the dirt and stay dead. There is a soul that goes on. There is a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And this is why, notice the last verse right there. He says, in, uh, this ver verse 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And that word strive, you know, that's agonizing. That's, man, doing everything you can to make sure that that, that little voice that you have inside of you. Now, before you're a Christian, you have a conscience just based on the natural creation of who you are in God's image. After you become a Christian, that conscience, it receives more data. And you get the information from the Bible. You get the Holy Spirit. And all that is part of the, the conscience, I believe. And he starts telling you things. You know, you shouldn't say that. So you don't. You shouldn't go there. Show you, so you don't. You should read your Bible. So you do. You should mend that relationship. And so you don't drag your feet. Paul here said that when I, because I know all this is real. And so I strive that there would be no, you know, violation of my conscience you know no one would see me you know look at that girl again you know i could just kind of do a real quick side look or something god sees so so when you start doing stuff like that you start compromising in little ways like that you're you're jacking up your conscience and paul here he gives us man such a great example in his confession he says i strive to make sure that, that my conscience is clean before God and, and men. 
And what we find is that this guy was blameless. He was bold. You know, the accusation that was awful led, however, to a Christian confession, which was beautiful. You know, and the Lord had predicted, Paul, because you're faithful, God knew the whole story before it ever began. When he got saved, the Lord told Ananias, I want you to go tell him that he's going to testify before kings because of the calling on his life. You know, Paul here, he was clean even in Jerusalem. Verse 17, after many years, I, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else those who are here themselves say, you know, speak up. Say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. You know, Paul here had said that when he stood before the Sanhedrin. What have I done wrong? You guys know. Let them bring forth the evidence. Let's hear the story. Let's hear the details. But there was none. All Paul had was a confession that he was a Christian. He loved the Lord, and it was a beautiful thing when you look at it. And so I, I believe more than likely the Jews thought that they were good, that they had you know, this guy where they wanted him to be. But, but like we talked last week, the devil pursues us that we might die, but God protects us that we might finish our race. And so we see what ends up happening is Felix, he doesn't hand, them over, hand him over to the Jews, but he does procrastinate. Notice in verse 20, uh, two, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings. And he said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning, notice, the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he answered, go away. <laughs> go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. And you guys know now, you know, 2020 is hindsight. We look back in history, and we discover that he was one of the greatest men of God ever to live. And Felix had the opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, he could have given his life to Christ. He could have set the apostle, he could have done the right thing, set the apostle free, but he didn't. What does he do? He does what a lot of us think we can do. Well, I won't make a decision, either for or, or against. I'm going to be neutral here. 
you know, I'll procrastinate. One day, you know, I'm sure we'll take care of this, but, you know, not now. I can hide from God. Listen, you can't hide from God. And, and what we find is that procrastination, man, it's an awful thing. You know, everything really was leaning towards God calling him. I mean, Felix, it says he had more accurate knowledge of the way. How did he have uh, knowledge? His wife was Jewish. And he kind of had a lot of information throughout the whole life of Christ and the whole Christian thing. Uh, His wife was the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, who had tried to kill baby Jesus. She was the great-niece of the Herod who killed John the Baptist. Her father was the man who had the apostle James put to death. I mean, they, I mean, this guy, Felix, through his wife, knew a lot about all these things. And then Felix, of course, being uh, governor of Judea and Samaria for many years, undoubtedly knew a lot about this. But what does he do? In spite of the fact that he knows so much, he puts off the decision. Maybe thinking that I can avoid the issue like Pilate did when Jesus was there in his face. You know, I'll wash my hands. You know, I'm, I'm innocent, but go ahead and kill him. What? You can't wash your hands like this. Listen, Jesus is in all of our faces. And you have to make a decision either for or against. There's no middle ground. You know, the, the thing about Felix, and I don't know for sure because there's a lot of factors involved, but I, I, I think part of the reason that he didn't really open himself up to the Lord is because he, he was so greedy for money. You know, and there's a lot of people that are out there, they're working right now, they should be in here. You know, there's different things going on. I'm not saying everybody on Sundays has to be here, but sometimes, man, you get another job or another job or whatever. It's funny how you can take a penny, and if you hold it close enough to your eye, it'll block out the sun. You know, Jesus said, you can't serve mammon and me because eventually your loyalty will be tested, right? And you, you can't serve two gods. You know, this guy right here wanted Paul to have you know, visitors because they might provide for him. And he would kind of send for him and talk. Kind of like, you know, I don't know for sure if it was sincere, but, but basically he wanted a bribe, huh? He wanted money. When in all reality, Paul could have given him, you know, the things greater than money. Remember what Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. You know, when Paul did talk to Felix, he talks about righteousness. You know, and this is just about how how we can be right in God's sight, right? Righteousness. And a lot of times people think, well, I'm a good person, so I'll be okay. You know, but Isaiah 64 and verse 6, it says that even the best person, uh, it says your righteousness is as filthy rags before God. You know, because you can't compare your righteousness to the person sitting next to you. God doesn't grade on a curve. You have to compare yourself to God. And so he's reasoning, you know, with Felix about, about righteousness and, and, you know, no doubt sharing Second Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And, and, and then he reasons with him about self-control. That's a big one, huh? Because I think a lot of times we struggle with self-control, right? Any of you guys here ever struggle with that every once in a while? 
you said something you shouldn't have said or you go off the handle. Next thing you know, you're doing all these crazy things and you're like, man, I can't stop myself. And then Felix was definitely guilty of that. This guy right here had taken his current wife from her former husband, the king of Amessa in Syria. And so she was Felix's third wife. His first wife was the granddaughter of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. His second wife was a princess that he just divorced for random reasons. And now he's on his third marriage. Like a lot of guys today, no control, no self-control when it comes to sexual purity. When, when the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And it's just so cool when we eventually, like James chapter 3, when we eventually come to a place in our life where we mature. In James chapter 3, it says that when you become a mature, mature man, you tame your tongue. See? And so he's talking to Felix about righteousness, about self-control, and then about the judgment to come. And, you know, there they are, and he's talking to the governor, and in one sense, the governor's the judge. But in one sense, the judge needs to know that Jesus is the judge. And I pray, you guys, and I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord, but, man, I pray that you're ready to stand before the judge, not based on your own behavior, right? Because you're not going to be good enough, but when you place your faith in Christ, when you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again, when you believe that he is the Savior and you accept him as the Lord of your life, when you let him call the shots, and you're not just playing church, you're not just going every once in a while, but this is a real relationship that you have with God, then you'll know it and your life will change. You know, because Spurgeon said that uh, a faith that doesn't change my behavior will never change my destiny. You know, you, you don't have to pull the wool over my eyes or your mom's eyes or your son's eyes or your husband's eyes or your grandpa's eyes. You, you, you can do that to people, but it doesn't do you any good. Do you really know the Lord? I pray that if you don't, that today would be the day that you give your life to him. You know, what we find right here is a couple of years go by and, and Felix doesn't do anything with Paul. Next thing you know, he moves on. Festus takes over and, you know, he misses the opportunity of a lifetime. And I believe a lot of it has to do with the fact that he simply practiced procrastination. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it, you know, another time. And and you know what? We don't know if we have another time. I remember reading this quote. It said, the tragedy of life is not that it ends so soon, but that oftentimes we wait so long for it to begin. You know, you don't have to wait till later. I mean, sometimes there will be those deathbed conversions, but man, don't wait. You know, don't procrastinate. Now give your life to the Lord today. Christian who needs to surrender, a non-Christian who needs to come, he'll heal your broken heart. He'll wash away your sins. He'll not only fill you with the Holy Spirit, he will empower you with the Holy Spirit. You will walk on water. You will move mountains. 
you will change the world. You young people, you're the next generation. You need the power of the Holy Spirit because we're living in a time where eventually if things don't change, you know, we're not only living in a, in a, in a hostile environment, we're living in a time where it will be anti-Christian. So we got to be ready. You know, I, I was reading a story about procrastination. And this apparently there was this man that was cleaning out his desk and he found a shoe repair ticket that was 10 years old. Figuring that he had nothing to lose, he went to the shop and he gave the ticket to the repairman who began to search the back room for the unclaimed shoes. And after several minutes, he reappeared to give the ticket back to the man. And the man said, what's wrong? Couldn't you find my shoes? And the repairman said, oh, I found them. They'll be ready next Friday. And he said, <laughs> and I was thinking about that. I'm like, okay, it's one thing when it comes to those souls, but it's another thing when it comes to your soul. Listen, you don't have to wait for anything. God has got a good deal for you. I'll take all the things that are messed up in your life and I'll bear it on my body, my heart. I'll take all the aches, all the pains, all the sins, all the bad. And let's do this. Let's exchange lives. You give me, you give me your life, Jesus says, and I'll give you mine. I tell you what, that's something that I would never, ever wait to do. One lady said, procrastination is my sin. It brings me not but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. Today, let it be today.